You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. As you all know, as human beings, we all have a deep need for connection. And when the relationships in our lives aren't providing us with that source of connection and love and support and intimacy, it can be extremely distressing. So I wanted to focus this week's episode on relationships and relationship patterns and dynamics that we can learn to recognize so that we can take ownership over our ability to both name and shift our own potential contributions to these patterns. We'll begin by describing two sets of relationship and communication patterns that have been identified by scientific research to have profound effects on the quality of relationships. And then we'll transition into some key strategies that can be used to effectively address the harmful aspects of these patterns. Because I do believe that enhancing the quality of our relationships involves both identifying these patterns more clearly and having a very clear and concrete sense of how to skillfully respond when we do notice problematic patterns in our relationships. We'll make sure to focus today on both. So before we get into some specific kinds of dynamics that can be harmful and toxic in relationships, I think it might be helpful if you're willing to consider one or two relationships in your life that feel deeply important to you now. So relationships that you really are invested in that you want to continue to enhance and nurture. Keeping these relationships in mind throughout our conversation today will help you personalize the information I share and find a way to make it your own and implement it more readily. And although our focus today will be on dyadic relationships or relationships that involve two people, many of the patterns that we'll talk about can still apply to relationships or relationship systems involving two or more people. For example, families with more than two members, co-parenting structures with more than two parents, co-housing communities, and more. So my hope today is that there will be pearls of wisdom that will be applicable to you regardless of the kinds of relationships in your life that you are invested in continuing to nurture and grow and enhance. As you consider the relationship or two that you'd like to focus on today, I want to encourage you to remember that even the most loving, supportive, engaged, and attentive relationships can have toxic elements to them. And this is because our relationships are, like us, imperfect. And in our human way, we sometimes can cause harm in the context of relationships. We can sometimes contribute to toxicity 
without realizing it, without meaning to, or even when we're really trying hard not to. And that is the very definition of toxicity. Toxicity refers to something that is harmful or harsh in a pervasive or insidious way. So when we think about that concept as it applies to relationships, toxicity can sometimes involve patterns that are so ingrained that we don't recognize their costs or the ways in which we perpetuate those patterns. And sometimes these harmful dynamics are so subtle that they can fly under our radar and we aren't consciously aware that they exist. Other times, the aspects of our relationships that are helpful, that are supportive, that help us feel good, can overshadow the harmful sides or cause us to downplay the parts that aren't working. Another important caveat I want to mention is that there certainly are relationships in which we do not contribute to toxicity and the toxicity stems exclusively from someone else's behavior. And so there are times in which we need to make sure that we are not over assuming responsibility for someone else's harmful So there is a delicate balance here between acknowledging our own contributions and holding ourselves accountable, but also making sure that we're not over-assuming that responsibility and accountability. Since the first step to changing harmful relationship patterns is being able to recognize them when they're happening, let's dig a bit deeper into the specific relationship patterns and characteristics that I want to share with you today. So the ones I've chosen to highlight come from evidence-based therapies implemented with couples, specifically dialectical behavior therapy and emotionally focused couples therapy. And even though each of these therapies refers to these dynamics in their own ways with different names and tends to highlight certain nuances of these patterns differently, the overarching patterns are similar, so I am going to be presenting them together. And again, while these labels for these patterns are used in couples therapies, I do think that these dynamics can apply to a wide variety of relationships and relationship structures. So for each relationship pattern I describe, as I describe it, I encourage you to consider the extent to which that particular relationship pattern applies to you in your life, perhaps seeing if you can call to mind a time in that specific relationship in which that pattern seemed very relevant. So the first pattern that we'll talk about is the constructive engagement pattern. In this pattern, both people are very aware of their needs, desires, and preferences. And because of this acute awareness of personal needs, desires, and preferences, they are quite able to make requests of one another and to bring up issues that are concerning them in a way that is calm, descriptive, non-attacking, and very clear. In this pattern, both people are able to meet each other with understanding and empathy even when there is disagreement. 
So while both people may experience intense emotions during the conversation, they're able to regulate those emotions skillfully so that those emotions and their intensity don't interfere with their communication or their connection. And because of that emotion regulation, they're able to respond without defensiveness and with empathy. And when there is disagreement, there is willingness to tolerate that disagreement. So it's not as though either person feels in a rush to come to a point of agreement that might compromise what they actually need or feel like a compromising of their values, that there is an ability to tolerate the disagreement without that needing to mean something global about the relationship. That perhaps the relationship is destined to fail or that maybe there is some deep-seated problem that can't actually be addressed. And maybe even with disagreement, both people in the relationship are able to enjoy each other's company. So in fact, conflict and disagreement can actually be a source of intimacy. It can be an opportunity for connection for all of these reasons, because of the ability to tolerate disagreement, because of the ability to regulate emotional intensity, because of the ability to have empathy and meet one another with non-defensiveness. So as you can imagine, this is a pattern that we would ideally like to be in most of the time. The second pattern is often referred to as a withdraw-withdraw pattern or a mutual avoidance pattern. And in this pattern, there is infrequent arguing as well as minimal closeness. And oftentimes, this mutual avoidance can come from difficulties trusting the other person to be there in times of vulnerability. And that may be because of past experience. It may be from a hurt that hasn't been adequately repaired. There could also be some kind of relief that is experienced when troublesome issues aren't confronted. And that relief can reinforce the avoidance. Again, this may not be necessarily an intentional process, but it could be that because of how aversive it is to disagree and to have conflict, the comfort and relief that is experienced when that conflict and disagreement is avoided perpetuates this pattern. Other times, one or both people in the relationship can be really sensitive to the other person's emotional state so they can read the other person's emotions really well. And so if they sense that someone is angry or frustrated or that they may be somewhat dismissive or not that attentive to concerns when they get raised, they might anticipate all of those negative outcomes and potentially use that as a rationale for not moving forward with addressing whatever the issue of concern is. So regardless of how this pattern emerged or the factors in place that might perpetuate the pattern or encourage the pattern, both people in the relationship 
tend to avoid bringing up issues of concern. And this could be a pattern that is reflective of the relationship as a whole, or it could be pertinent to specific topics, perhaps, for instance, sexual intimacy or finances or values differences related to parenting. The attack attack pattern, which is sometimes referred to as a destructive engagement pattern, tends to involve a lot of hostility. Of course, when there is an interaction in which a lot of hostility is being expressed, those hostile expressions can really interfere with expressions of love and connection. It's really challenging to express how much you love someone when you feel as though you are under attack. High hostility can also not only interfere with our ability to hear what someone is saying and to hear how they are affected by our actions, but also interfere with our ability to understand the other person's perspective, to really see it from their point of view in an authentic way. And many of us get defensive as a means to protect ourselves when we feel under attack. And so there can be this vicious cycle that occurs in which hostility begets more hostility. And the more attacking we feel as though we are under, the more attack we give in return. And this kind of pattern can sensitize us to future interactions. So it's almost like we might expect hostility even before the interaction begins, which can create a sort of emotional vulnerability. If we're entering in an interaction somewhat on edge or are pretty hypervigilant to any potential cues that an interaction might be headed in a more hostile direction, that can really shut us down in a way that is really unhelpful. It's also important to keep in mind that for this pattern, like the others that we've already described, the interaction doesn't necessarily have to start off with an attack-attack kind of approach. It actually may in fact start off in a very calm, mutually loving and respectful way, but escalates to the point in which a lot of hostility gets expressed. And again, this pattern could be reflective of a relationship more generally or tied to a specific topic that has a really high emotional charge, like plans for the treatment of a child's medical issue in which there is a lot of fear or worry or how to spend time and when to spend time with extended family and friends outside of the relationship. So there is a lot of variability in terms of the kinds of situations in which this kind of pattern might be applicable. The fourth pattern is referred to either as a pursue-withdraw pattern or an engage-distance pattern. And in this pattern, each person is responding differently. So one person, for example, wants to have a conversation or address the problem. So that person would be the pursuer. And the other person really doesn't. And so they would be the withdrawer or the distancer. And there could be a lot of reasons that that person doesn't necessarily want to engage. It could be because they want some alone time. Perhaps they tend to prefer personal time for introspection. And so they want some time alone to be able to process what's happening, to think more about how they feel about the situation at hand. 
perhaps they don't want to discuss the topic further. Maybe they notice that they're getting pretty emotionally activated and they don't think it will be effective to speak when they are noticing that level of physiological arousal. Or maybe they don't want to physically be with the other person in that particular moment. It feels a bit overwhelming or intense. So essentially, this cycle reinforces itself. The more the pursuer pursues, the more the withdrawer withdraws. The more the withdrawer withdraws, the more the pursuer pursues, and so on and so on. And this is not to say that any one person is at fault or any one person's way of approaching the disagreement or conflict is better, more that there is a dynamic happening. There is an interaction that can create the sort of negative feedback loop that can get, be hard to get out of. So let's say, for example, as a way of illustrating this pattern, my partner comes home talking about how upset they are about their day. And my partner perceives me to be pretty distracted and not all that empathic. And so they don't really feel like they are getting what they want or need from me or this interaction. And so then they start to make interpretations about that lack of support. Maybe thoughts like, Melissa doesn't care, she doesn't even seem like she's listening, which then increases their emotional vulnerability And they get more hurt and more angry as they see more signs that, or more signs that they interpret to mean that I am not that engaged. I am not that interested in what they have to say. And so all of those emotions and thoughts then fuel some kind of response from them like, are you even listening right now? And perhaps I actually was listening But I didn't realize that I was giving off these nonverbal cues that came across as distracted. I didn't realize that I was less talkative than I normally am, maybe because I'm pretty tired. And so because I really feel like I was paying attention and and I do care and don't know what's going on inside my partner's head, all I hear is the, are you even listening right now? Then I start to get somewhat frustrated and defensive and think thoughts like wow in their eyes I can never do anything right I'm always getting it wrong no matter how hard I try alternatively maybe I was a bit distracted when my partner approached me maybe my partner interrupted something that I was doing and I am not that great at shifting sets or task shifting and so I I was a little bit preoccupied when they were approaching me and so I feel frustrated because this is something that my partner and I have actually talked about before that I need some kind of transition or segue into a conversation because that kind of transition is so hard for me so I think thoughts like wow they didn't even ask if this was a good time. They didn't even realize that I was working and clearly they don't value my work. And so again, even though this is a a different example, I am still highly emotionally activated and feeling somewhat defensive and hurt and angry. And maybe in response, I say something like, yep, you're right. I guess I never do anything right. And I walk away. Or maybe I say something like, 
I'm listening. I really am listening. But I'm so distressed by how I'm interpreting my partner's behavior by my own emotions and my own inner dialogue and the meaning that I'm making that I am too distressed to fully be present and pay attention, which further activates more pursuit on the part of my partner are you listening are you even listening and more withdrawal on my part so more distractibility more shutting down maybe urges to walk away so as this example highlights there really is no one way that a pursuer pursues or one way that a withdrawer withdraws and in fact being a pursuer or withdrawer isn't even necessarily our identity because as we've discussed, some of these patterns can shift based on the topic of conversation. They can shift based on the stage of our relationship because relationships can and do evolve over time and certain patterns that were predominant early in the relationship may not be relevant or problematic later in the relationship. So these examples really are here to give us all something to consider as we work towards making some improvements and enhancements to the quality of our relationships and the way in which we interact and communicate and respond to one another. The second set of patterns I want to highlight comes from research out of the Gottman Institute. And these are more focused on communication styles and are particularly important to highlight because they have been shown through research to predict the endings of relationships. So there really is a high need to tackle these styles head on when we do notice them if we want to preserve our relationships long term. These communication styles can happen and exist within the context of the patterns we discussed earlier, whether it be constructive engagement, attack, attack, withdraw, withdraw, or pursue, withdraw. So it really is important to consider those four relationship patterns, as well as the communication styles we're about to discuss in concert, especially as you are reflecting on your relationship of choice for our conversation today. Because of the very strong evidence-based support for the association between these particular communication styles and the endings of relationships, these are referred to as the four horsemen. The first horseman is criticism. And criticism is very different from complaining because criticism has a lot of inherent judgment in it. So if I am complaining, there is a way in which I can complain that is a non-judgmental description of my experience. So for example, I could say something like, you know, it really hurt my feelings when you didn't check in with me after that presentation that I was so anxious about. And that might be viewed as a complaint, that might view be viewed as an expression of a need, but regardless, it is a description of my experience and it's non-judgmental. I'm not using any kinds of value judgments or labels as I talk. A criticism, on the other hand, might look something like, you know, you're so self-centered and you get so distracted by your work that you don't even think to ask me about things that I'm anxious about, like that presentation I just gave. So in this example, 
I'm calling the person self-centered. I'm saying that they're really distracted by their work. I'm making a lot of assumptions um, and there are inherent judgments within my form of expression. The second horseman is referred to as contempt. And I personally think of contempt as being really mean. So that could involve mocking someone through name calling or repeating their words back to them in a certain tone of voice. It could involve eye rolling or other kinds of facial expressions or body language that is derisive. It could be laughing at someone when they are bringing up something that is not funny or not intended to be humorous. It could be a lot of sarcasm. And the gestalt of this, the overall outcome, is that the person who is the aim of the contempt ends up leaving the interaction feeling extremely worthless. So the contempt is criticism taken to a higher level. Of course, judgment is a part of contempt, just as it is with criticism, but the level of judgment is so much deeper because it creates a power dynamic in which the person who is acting contemptuously is portraying themselves as the better person or as taking the moral high road. So there could also be an element here of some kind of moral superiority. So an example of contempt might be something like, I find it completely ridiculous that you have the audacity to tell me that I'm self-centered. You're one of the most selfish people that I know. Look at how few friends you have because of how selfish you are. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't actually have any friends. So you can see how this does take criticism to a much higher and deeper level and can very much target self-worth. And there is research that shows that contempt when used, is associated with higher rates of infectious illnesses like colds and the flu because contempt has the power to weaken immune systems, which I think is pretty profound and important. There also is a bit of research that shows that contempt is the single greatest predictor of divorce. So again, a lot of the research coming out of the Gottman Institute doesn't necessarily focus on married couples. And in fact, there is a large body of research on all sorts of different kinds of relationship types and structures. But the fact that research that has been conducted with married couples shows how crucial contempt is in terms of predicting divorce and negative outcomes, I think really underscores the importance of this for of these four horsemen as a target of sorts when really trying to enhance relationships and nourish and sustain them long term. The third horseman is defensiveness. And in the Gottman's research, this can look like denying responsibility through making excuses and explaining all of the reasons why someone perhaps shouldn't be held accountable. And it can also look like attacking the other person and placing the fault on them. So if someone approaches me and says, you know, I was really hurt that you came home later than you had said you would and didn't mention to me that you were going to be running late. And I then respond by saying, well, 
I had a deadline and you know that sometimes these deadlines get sprung on me and you have a really hard time being alone. And if you weren't so sensitive about being alone, perhaps this wouldn't be such a problem. So I've now denied responsibility. I've given an excuse and have turned things around a bit. So now I'm focused on the partner who broached the topic with me rather than focusing on my behavior of the lateness and not having given a heads up that I was going to be late. The fourth horseman is stonewalling, and stonewalling involves some kind of withdrawal from the interaction. So as you might recall from the patterns we were discussing earlier, there isn't one way to withdraw. Withdrawal can take a lot of different forms. So one example could be shutting down through silence. It could be leaving the conversation entirely by physically going somewhere else. It could look like ignoring or acting busier than you are so that someone doesn't approach you or interrupt you. It could also be engaging in distracting behaviors like looking at your phone or tidying up a room in the house. Um, Or it could even be a more active form of withdrawal like evasive responses um, or asking questions in response to you having been asked a question. So in the example I just gave about lateness, if someone says, oh, why, why are you coming home so late? Responding with a question and response, like, why are you asking me this? I just got home. You're not even giving me time to sit down. Or it could be vague responses that don't really give the level of detail that the other person would really prefer or is requesting. And sometimes stonewalling isn't necessarily an an intentional response. Someone isn't necessarily trying to be evasive or to be deceitful or cover up some kind of wrongdoing. Sometimes it can be precipitated by some intense physiological arousal. So when someone is emotionally overwhelmed, it might cause them to zone out a bit or tune out someone else, whether that is because of the overwhelm or as a form or way or attempt to manage that level of overwhelm that they're experiencing. Now that we've spent some time going through the details of certain kinds of relationship patterns and communication styles that have been supported by scientific research, I want to switch gears a bit and talk a bit more about how we can intervene when we notice some of these patterns and styles. And while I do think that there are are absolutely specific nuanced responses that can be helpful depending on the history of the specific relationship that we're in, that can be helpful depending on the specifics of the interaction and what prompted it. I do think that there are some core skill sets that can be beneficial regardless of the specific details of what is happening or what the context is. And so that is the spirit in which I will present some of these strategies and ideas to you today. The first involves our ability to non-judgmentally observe and describe two skills that are essential core components of mindfulness. The observe refers to the noticing how we take in what we are seeing. And the describe refers to our ability to put those observations into words in a non-judgmental way. So in other words, we are translating what we are seeing, what we are observing into 
language. And using language that non-judgmentally describes them as they are. So much so that someone who wasn't there could get a sense of what was happening without value judgments being imparted on that description. And we can use these observe and describe skills to not only acknowledge and name our own emotions and physiological sensations and thought patterns and urges and needs and desires as they are emerging, but also to observe and describe what is observable about the other person's experience as well as the dynamic between us. So for example, in the midst of an intense interaction, slowing down and pausing and turning inward to observe and describe, I could ask myself, what do I feel emotionally right now? What do I notice in my body? What thoughts are running through my mind? I might notice that emotionally I feel hurt and resentful. And in my body, I sense a tightness in my chest, a constriction in my throat. Maybe even my heart rate has increased and my face feels kind of flushed. And in my mind, I notice thoughts like, that person is being really unfair and I'm so burnt out on these fights. I'm just so tired of these fights. We fight about the same thing over and over again. And while I can't observe and describe the other person's internal experience, I can use my observation skills to observe and perceive their verbal and nonverbal behavior and use those observations to then inform my sense of what might be happening for them. So let's take an example between a parent and child. So say my child and I are having a hard time and we're in the midst of a difficult interaction and I notice the judgment, my child's being totally ridiculous and throwing a tantrum. The more non-judgmental description might look something like this. My child was crying, their voice was shaking, and they stomped their foot on the ground as they yelled, I'm never talking to you again. And then I noticed that I had the thought that this was ridiculous and I was feeling nervous about what was going to happen next and I was also feeling hurt. So you can see how in this example, even though I did have a judgmental thought that my child was being ridiculous and labeling what was happening as a tantrum, I can still take a step back and observe that judgment and describe that judgment in a way that can lead to more effective action. If I just say my child is being ridiculous and throwing a tantrum, I'm somewhat fused and tied to that narrative in a way that will likely make me feel angrier and more frustrated and maybe even more hurt and therefore act from that place. But if I am able to diffuse a little bit from the judgment by observing it as a judgment rather than a definitive factual part of my experience, it might create some space between what is happening and my internal response to it. And in addition to shifting my internal response to what is happening, it might also shift my external response to what is happening in a way that might de-escalate the situation rather than escalate it. So 
instead of saying out loud my thought of this is totally ridiculous that you're having this tantrum with this separation from my thought with my ability to acknowledge what is happening to observe what I see in my child to observe what I notice emotionally and physiologically and cognitively in myself I might be able to instead say it seems like we're both really upset and maybe had a misunderstanding or maybe something along the lines of it seems like I might have hurt your feelings and I'm sorry about that. Is that true? So this doesn't necessarily mean that I'm okay with what is happening, that I'm glad that my child is struggling or that I need to necessarily get rid of my feelings of hurt and resentment. Those can absolutely be addressed as well, but they are likely more effectively addressed if both my child and I are more well-regulated, more able to hear each other, to understand each other's perspectives, and to meet each other with empathy and understanding of why we might feel the way that we do, even if we don't necessarily agree. So with this ability to name what is happening in the moment in a non-judgmental way, it can help me communicate to the other person, to my child, in a way that helps them feel seen and heard and might also give me a clearer sense of what is happening in a way that gives me a path forward. If I'm sticking to the narrative of my child is ridiculous and is having a tantrum, I might think the solution is to help my child be less ridiculous and stop having a tantrum when likely there's an underlying reason that this dynamic has happened. And if I'm sticking to the narrative of the tantrum, I'm not really addressing that underlying problem. I'm, I'm missing it. I'm glossing over a really important piece of the puzzle. And so any attempts that I make from that more emotionally activated judgmental place are going to miss those key elements. Judgment also sets us up for more disagreement and conflict. So how I define a tantrum may be quite different than how my child defines a tantrum. So if I say stop having a tantrum, my child can say I'm not having a tantrum and it just further exacerbates the situation and doesn't diffuse it. So not only does the non-judgmental approach allow us to take that step back to really put into words what our experience is, what we're noticing and observing about the other person and the dynamic, it also gives us more of a clear sense of what would be involved in responding skillfully and effectively in a way that matches the reality of what is rather than the judgments that we are attributing to the reality of what is. The importance of having a sense of a clear path forward when we're in the midst of tension and conflict leads me to the second strategy, which involves establishing names for certain types of communication styles or patterns so that we have a shared language for observing and describing them together collaboratively in the moment. So with this shared language in place, we can join in addressing the dynamic and the problem that we're facing then lies in the dynamic rather than one of us. 
And that can get us out of this kind of blame game. It can join us against a common enemy, so to speak, of the dynamic itself rather than needing to find fault in one of each of us. Of course, you can use the names we've been describing here today for the four horsemen or the attack, attack, withdraw, withdraw, or pursue, withdraw, if those labels resonate with you. But I also invite you to come up with your own. And I think that sometimes having our own names and labels can be a lot more powerful because they're personalized to us. So to share some examples with you to to maybe get some juices flowing, I've had some people refer to the attack attack pattern as the boxing ring or the tornado. The withdraw withdraw pattern, I've heard people refer to that as going into our corners or our caves. And I've also heard people refer to the pursue withdraw as the chase. And so for people with younger children, and even in our own family, I love using animal metaphors for a lot of these dynamics because I think that can really resonate with with younger children. So for an example related to more of the attack-attack pattern, we'll often say something like, I think we each have some tiger in our bellies right now. Or for more of the withdraw-withdraw pattern, we might say something like, I'm feeling a little bit like a turtle right now, huddled in my shell. What about you? Or for the more pursue withdraw, saying something like, is there a cat and mouse in our house right now? And these kinds of names and dynamics can depersonalize the situation. They can also bring a bit of lightheartedness and humor that doesn't necessarily compromise the severity of what is happening or lead us to take it less seriously, but it can soften the edges of the tension to some degree. And if you can join with the other person in coming up with a non-judgmental name for that dynamic, one that you find yourselves in frequently, outside of a heated debate or conflict, it then gives you a way outside of a heated conflict to talk through what doesn't work about the dynamic. Maybe even to reflect on times that things have gone well and what was different about those times that things went well from the times that things really didn't go so well. And so really identifying the strengths and areas for growth together. And with this shared language in place, there is also a more attuned ability to then identify what you can each commit to, something that you can do differently when you notice these dynamics happening. This brings me to the third key strategy, which underscores the importance of figuring out what to do instead of the things that we do to foster some of these unhelpful dynamics. So again, there is no one prescribed way to do this and some of the specifics of what might be helpful in your relationship might vary, but I will share a few examples. So maybe you notice that something that contributes to rising tension in the midst of conflict is your tone of voice. Maybe you can be a little sarcastic. Maybe you can come across more intensely than you mean to. So you commit to pausing for at least five seconds before you say things in the midst of conflict as a way to help you really monitor your tone more effectively. 
Maybe you find yourself getting really physiologically activated in the midst of intense conversations or conflict and that physiological activation can rise to the level that you can get pretty defensive or shut down, withdraw from the interaction in a way that can make things worse. So you decide that you'll commit to taking breaks when you notice that physiological activation occurring and going on a run or taking a hot shower to help you regulate, paired with the intention of circling back to the conversation at a later time. You also might notice that when you are tempted to withdraw, it's really hard to engage in a different kind of behavior. You find yourself kind of frozen, kind of stuck. So instead of replacing that withdrawal behavior with more of an approach behavior, you might start at the step of narrating out loud for the other person what's happening. So some version of, I'm noticing an urge to withdraw right now. Can you help me stick with this conversation? So you can have your friend or partner or family member really support you in that process, but that support is hard to provide if the conversation around these dynamics and what each person is going to commit to hasn't already taken place. Maybe you notice you have a tendency to criticize, and so you're really going to practice your non-judgmental stance. You're really going to practice framing things as likes and dislikes rather than as judgmental descriptions. So rather than saying what might first cross your mind, which is you're really a jerk sometimes, which of course would be a judgment because of the name jerk, you could say something like, I don't like it when you walk away when we're, when we're talking. I feel hurt and think that you don't care. So that would be a way to get at the underlying feelings that result in us thinking of someone as a jerk. It gets at the underlying need that is not being met. I am trying to talk to you and you walk away and this is the meaning that I make of that. A fourth strategy involves striking a balance between acknowledging our own accountability and holding the other person responsible for theirs. Now, of course, this balance is not always 50-50. Sometimes an incident that happens is largely due to one person's actions rather than the others. So we need to be mindful of making sure that the balance that we are holding in terms of accountability accurately reflects the reality of the situation. And having this kind of balance that accurately reflects the reality of the situation involves being aware of our own tendencies, which could be on one end of the spectrum, tending to over-apologize at times when it's not necessary. And at the other end of the spectrum, it could be a tendency to overly blame others when we are at fault. And of course, there's a lot of range in between. It might also mean trying to arrive at a genuine apology when one is warranted, just as it might involve resisting urges to apologize when we haven't done anything wrong or that isn't necessary or we've already apologized and we don't need to keep doing so. So let's just say we try to let someone know that our feelings are hurt and they get defensive. They deny that they did it, they attack us for even bringing it up, and then they focus on how unfair it is that we're being so hard on them. An example of a response that could strike this delicate balance between 
holding the other person accountable for their behavior and owning my own contributions might look something like this. When I let you know that my feelings were hurt by not asking about my day, it seems like you felt defensive because you started pointing out all the times that I haven't asked you about your day. And so then I felt criticized, like I was being attacked. And it also took the attention away from my hurt feelings. I'm definitely willing to talk about the times I haven't asked you about your day. But for right now, can we stick to what I brought up originally? And so in this example, I'm owning my own contributions. I'm holding myself accountable without apologizing for the times that I perhaps have not asked about the other person's day. And at the same time, I'm not allowing the conversation, or at least I'm making an attempt to not allow the conversation to get derailed by a different yet related topic and switching gears to a focus that would exclusively be on the other person. The fifth strategy involves the importance of validation. And I define validation as communicating that the other person's experience is understandable and makes sense. It could make sense given the current situation and the specifics of the situation. It could make sense given the history of our relationship. It could make sense given their individual past experiences. It could make sense based on human nature and how other people might respond in similar circumstances. And when we validate, it's important to remember that we are not necessarily agreeing with the other person's perspective. We're focusing on communicating that we understand why they might feel that way given what I just described, given human nature, given the relationship history, given their past experiences, given what just happened. And we can focus validation on a variety of different pieces. We can validate emotions. We can validate behaviors. We can validate thought patterns. We can validate urges. We're focusing on how all of those things might make sense given some kind of context. So an example of a validating statement could look something like, yeah, it makes sense that you felt like I didn't care since it seems like I was distracted when we were talking. And I think it can be really natural to think that someone is distracted when they're not really saying much in response. In that example, I'm validating that their perception that I don't care makes sense given human nature and what other people might think. And I'm also validating how their perspective makes sense given how they perceived my verbal and nonverbal behavior in that interaction. However, I am not saying that I agree that I was distracted or that my limited verbal response was a symbol of not caring. But I am communicating that I understand from their perspective why they might have seen it this way. And the reason that this kind of validation is so important to do, even when we're hurt, even when we're angry, is because when we feel seen and heard, we can often soften a bit. 
And that softening can allow us to regulate our emotions a bit more and in turn engage that much more effectively in the interaction, which can make us more open to hearing what the other person's experience was as well. So by validating someone else, it might allow them to then validate me more effectively. But without that validation in place, it can make it really challenging to have that interaction de-escalate because oftentimes things escalate because we don't feel heard, because we don't feel like someone's really getting our true perspective. Validating ourselves, though, is equally important to validating other people. We also need to communicate to ourselves that our experiences are understandable and make sense. So if I'm feeling angry, I need to search for the kernel of truth in my anger. I need to understand why my anger makes sense given what happened rather than buying into the thoughts that I don't have a right to feel this way, I'm a bad person for feeling this way. And with emotions, there is always some essence of validity, some kernel of truth to our emotional experience. Perhaps how we responded to our emotion wasn't effective. Perhaps the intensity of the emotion didn't quite align with what happened. But the fact that I felt what I felt is legitimate and valid at some level given some context. The sixth and final strategy I want to highlight today is the importance of ensuring that we are consistently focusing on cultivating positive time together and enhancing connection outside of conflict. And this, of course, is important for a variety of reasons, but for the discussion that we're having today, that cultivation of a positive reserve, of that kind of connection and intimacy, can really counterbalance times of hardship. And there's actually some research that shows that this needs to operate on a 20 to 1 ratio. So for every one kind of hurt or betrayal, we need to input about 20 different sources of nourishment. So this positive reserve is hugely in need of our attention and investment. And this can look a lot of different ways. It could involve passive time together when we're doing different activities alongside each other. And there could be more active time as well. So engaging in a shared activity or talking about something that you're both passionate about or interested in, like a hobby or something related to social justice or a book or a movie. It could also be focusing on ways to foster connection when you're physically apart, leaving notes for each other, sending text messages or emails throughout the day, even attending to how you depart when you are going to be physically separate and how you welcome each other back when you unite. It could also involve engaging in those activities mindfully without multitasking so that it feels mutually enjoyable and that both of you feel attended to and that the intimacy and the connection is deepening in some sort of way. So this is an important part of nourishing your relationship so that it continues to grow. And it's something that we can lose sight of when things are stressful and really packed in. So I think of relationships and our relational worlds like gardens. They're constantly changing with the seasons. They need 
lots of things to grow. They need sun and water and fertile soil. And there are times we need to prune and trim and add fertilizer and learn about different pests that are bringing disease to the garden, which can involve acquiring new knowledge and developing different skill sets. And so deepening intimacy and cultivating positive time together is like your water and your sun and your fertile soil. And identifying and addressing problematic relationship patterns and communication styles is like learning about those pests and how to skillfully eradicate them. And pruning and trimming is like making the commitments we are to changing the behaviors that are contributing to some of these harmful patterns. So in summary, from psychological research, we know that some harmful relationship patterns that exist include attack-attack, pursue-withdraw, and withdraw-withdraw, and that a helpful communication pattern can be the constructive engagement pattern. We also know that there are some communication styles within these patterns that can be quite toxic, including the four horsemen of criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, with contempt being the most destructive. But the good news is that there are strategies that can help serve as antidotes to these patterns. The first is observing and non-judgmentally describing our own emotions, physiological sensations, and thought patterns as they are emerging, as well as observing and non-judgmentally describing what we see in the other person and the dynamic as a whole. Establishing names for certain types of communication styles or patterns is also extremely important so that there is a shared language in place for observing and describing these dynamics together in the moment in a way that is joining and deepening of intimacy rather than distancing. Committing to behaviors that we can engage in to interrupt rather than promote these patterns is also extremely important, as is balancing accountability in terms of holding ourselves accountable as well as other people in a way that accurately maps on to the reality of the situation. Integrating validation for ourselves as well as other people as much as is authentically possible is also a key component. And finally, cultivating a reserve of positive connection to deepen intimacy and to serve as a foundational resource to guide us through conflict when it occurs is also paramount. And so remember, our relationship gardens, like us, are imperfect. They are susceptible to the changes of seasons, to the effects of weather systems. And so they need different layers of nourishment to thrive. They necessarily require an ongoing investment of emotional energy and time and commitment to nourish and enhance and sustain them across our lifespans. And while it can be understandably very difficult to navigate these relational challenges at times, it is absolutely possible. And it can feel that much more possible and rewarding when we join in doing this work together. 
Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.